As kind of a review from last week, uh, I would ask how your walk with God is going. Some of you remember our little demo of Connor Shelley up here walking around, uh, and it's just a picture of the fact that uh, each bumbling step that we take, maybe some of you have had just a great walk with, with God this last week, uh, and you come in here on cloud nine, uh, maybe some of us feel like we basically crawled in here this week, but we're here, so praise God for that. This week we're going to be shifting gears a little bit and talking about someone different. I wonder if you ever have been in a service, at a concert, at camp, maybe just walking in the forest, maybe over a cup of coffee with someone, but you've had one of those moments where you just longed to be used by God in some great way. You don't even have to be a Christian. You don't have to be one who who names Jesus as your Lord and Savior to to bring God into this, where, where you have just longed for something in your life to go on that is bigger than you. And that you just say, God, would you use me in some, in some big way? We want our lives to count, don't we? Or, or, or maybe you have prayed for revival. I don't know if you ever see and witness things around our neighborhood and around this city where you just long for God to break wide open on things and say, God, would you allow there to be revival, first in my own heart, in my own family, in my own circles, but for so much broader than that. Would you, would you just break open on this city? I hope you pray for revival. I hope that you have prayers where you are longing to be used by God in some way, shape, or form. But I would add this caution to it. Be careful. Because God might answer your prayer request in that. And sometimes, it's not exactly what you think you're praying for. It's like that prayer to say, God, would you please give me patience? That's a dangerous prayer, right? I mean, you know how your week is probably going to work out if you've ever prayed that kind of a prayer. Praying to be used by God and praying for revival can sometimes be dangerous prayers, but good prayers. As, as suburbanites, those of us who live in the suburbs, which probably most of you here uh, fit into that category, um, what I witness and as I talk to people and, and, and just drive around and interact with different people, and I know from my own life is this, we don't want to just be stuck in a routine the rest of our life. That's one of the fears we have. We want our lives to matter. We want something that we're doing to matter. And so we want to break out of maybe some of the routine that we have. As students, we long and yearn for adventure. And there's not a person in this room except Rob Collins uh, that doesn't yearn for our retirement years to not just be filled with golf and travel. Like that sounds okay for, that sounds okay for a tiny little portion of our life, and then we just get sick of it. We don't want our retirement to just be that. Look at all the neat places I've traveled and and the golf that I got to play um, at the end of it all. Sometimes, though, we romanticize this whole being used by God thing. And what we're going to do this morning is this. We're going to look into the scriptures and see God speaks into that. God speaks into our longings to be used by him in a great way, but he also speaks into the reality of it so we don't kind of put it on this pedestal and then wonder what on earth is happening in the midst of this whole being used by God. So, I want you to turn to the old, old Testament book of Jonah, which is um, go to the Psalms and hang a right and start flipping. We know you haven't been to Jonah in a little while. Some of you memorized the books of the Bible at Christian school or Awana. Good for you. You'll find it first. If you need the table of contents, go there. That's what they're there for. Go find Jonah. Um, tiny little book, four chapters long, fairly quick read. Uh, I would... Invite you to look at your bulletin. On the, on the back each week, you're going to get a preview of, of, of who's coming next. We're looking at different people in the Old Testament um, right now, and we are uh, calling it the step of yes, the idea that God invites people into the process of being used by him, and then we're looking at the responses that people have. Each week, you'll get to kind of get a preview of who's coming next. So in last week's bulletin, we mentioned Jonah. This following uh, this week will be Solomon. So you can kind of look in there and kind of preview a little bit and see where we're going. I'd, I'd encourage you to do your own study even before you show up on a Sunday so you can be kind of ready to go. Now... Uh, each week also, my compliments to David Collins this week for being our resident artist who drew Jonah for me. Uh, we're going to have different uh, kids around our church just, just providing the artwork for that. If you talk to most anyone, uh, inside or outside the church, no matter their background or experience, you ask them what Jonah is about. What's the first thing that will come to mind when you think of Jonah? What is it? A whale. Some of you are like, I think it's Jesus, but I don't know if that's really true. It's a whale. It's a great fish, right? That's what we associate Jonah with. If you haven't thought about him in a long time, you go, oh, is that the guy? You know, yeah, that's him. 
So we, we tend to associate Jonah with the great fish. But really, if you read these four chapters, that's, that's actually, although a spectacular portion, that's only a, a, a little portion of this book. The book is really about, here's the central characters, God, Jonah, who the book's named after, and then the thousands of enemies of God. Those are the characters in the book. That's really what the whole story centers around, although the fish gets a lot of credit because it's spectacular. Jonah is one of those unique books because it focuses more on the prophet's experience rather than on his message. Some of the prophets that you'll read in the scriptures talk a lot. There's page after page of what their message was, thus saith the Lord. And then on and on it goes telling about the, about the message. Jonah's message is very tiny and short, but the whole book revolves around his experience, which is interesting for us who were on mission for God as well to kind of dive into. If you were to make a movie out of his life, you might call him the prodigal prophet. That sums up in a nutshell what, what Jonah was all about. He was one that, that wandered away. Maybe you'd go with this motif of, of AWOL, you know, absent without leave. He didn't have permission to leave his post, but he did anyways. That's exactly what, what Jonah uh, was all about. Um, I, I think moviegoers today like and appreciate a more honest picture in their films. It's kind of funny to go back and watch older films sometimes, and a lot of times things tied up and ended really neatly, and somehow we've gotten more sophisticated beyond that. We, we, we don't buy that anymore. So we, we like it left messy. We like the more nitty-gritty and the honesty of things. If you read Jonah, it reads like a modern-day movie. It doesn't just have kind of a night, nice, neat you know, 23-minute-long sitcom ending where you just kind of have the story and it, and it kind of ties up. There's a lot of brutal honesty to it. And I wonder if every missionary who ever shared at a church was that brutally honest about what it's like to really be a missionary, what it's like to be used by God. I, I wonder what the paradigm would be for us. I think we'd have a less romantic idea of, of what it is to be a, a missionary um, Maybe a harder time getting people to go on the mission field, but maybe the right people would go on the mission field. All right, if you're at Jonah, um, good job, you've made it. If not, keep looking. It's worth the hunt. Uh, Jonah chapter 1, if you're there, follow along with me, verse 1. S- jumps right into it. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went aboard to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Verse 4, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. What was the core invitation of God to Jonah, in a nutshell, it was this. I want you to be a missionary for me. You're going to go have a crusade, and the first and only stop is the city Nineveh. To every invitation that you ever get, you respond to it. Even a non-response is a response. Jonah's response, quite clearly, is that he fled. Now, here's what's interesting. You read almost anyone who's been chosen by God to do something, and almost everyone to a man or woman quibbles with God about something. Moses. Think about Moses who was called to lead the people out of slavery from Egypt. Do you remember what Moses said back to God? What was his sticking point with God? Anyone remember that? My speech. You got the wrong guy. I stutter. I'm not a good speaker. There's all kinds of people that quibble back and forth with God. What's what's really powerful, by the way, to see as kind of a, a, a big, broad brushstroke of that is God doesn't just smite you and say, done, you're done, you question me, on to the next one. Some people have a view of God with that. God engages every one of those. Here's what's unique about Jonah. It's not unique to him, but he's in a, he's in a different camp. He's in a different club. Look at verse 3. It says it two times. Jonah fled the presence of the Lord. He didn't say, uh, how am I going to get there, or quibble with some detail point of it. He fled from the presence of the Lord. So if there's a step of yes, which is, you know, okay, I'm going to go in this direction, but I still think you got the wrong guy. I need a fleece to kind of see, you know, is this really from you or not? Uh, When's this going to happen? All these things. Instead of that, it was an absolutely not. I am fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Now, he's not alone. 
Adam and Eve hid in the garden, right? And there's been a lot of people who have fled the presence of the Lord. But he's in a different camp than some of those prophets who kind of quibble about some of the details of things. Verse 10, he brings it up again where he has been talking about it evidently to the sailors because they know he is fleeing the presence of the Lord. Look at verse 4 where it says, but the Lord. We already have two buts in this, in this passage. We have God saying, go this way to Nineveh, but Jonah. That means he didn't do that. And now we have, but God, right, who brings this tempest. And but the Lord in verse 4 is a sheer act of grace. But the Lord sent a tempest. That's engagement. That's relationship. That's pursuit. That's God's grace saying, I'm not done with you, Jonah. You're making a really boneheaded decision right now, but I'm coming after you. I'm not done with you. So that but the Lord is just a huge act of grace. I want you to envision this guy coming before a missions board. Now, a missions board is is a group of people in the church that basically you give. When, When you give to this church, you may or may not know this, but a certain percentage of your money right off the top goes straight to missionaries. On top of that, we have three missionaries that we support and, and, and whatnot. Um, the missions board takes those monies, those funds, and makes sure that we're, that we're doing things that are in, in alignment with, with what we believe Scripture and God is telling us as a, as, a, as a church to do. So people will come sometimes and say, we want to go on this trip, and we would evaluate them or, or whatever. So imagine a missions board talking with Jonah. It might go something like this. You know, uh, Jonah comes up and they say, so, you know, you'd like to be a missionary. Uh, Jonah says, well, that's just it. No. I really don't want to be a missionary. Uh, okay, well, tell me about your walk. You know, which for those of you who are new to the program, that's Christianese for how, how are you doing with Christ? What is, what is your time with God like? He might say something like this. Well, I run from God and tend to do the opposite of what he tells me. Hmm, okay, a couple notes written down by the missions board. Uh, you clearly have a heart for people, though. Uh, Jonah. Well, actually, you might say that I lack compassion. That's putting it mildly is what my friends say. Uh, okay, what about God? Tell us about your view of God. Well, I don't fear him. I tend to travel with pagans who fear God, seek God, and have more compassion than me. And I really dislike it when God has mercy on sinners. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to tell us, Jonah? Oh, yeah. I'm suicidal. And that might be how it's going, you know. I mean, you bring this guy before any missions board in America, and, and it, it wouldn't have gone good. But, but if they ask this question, what do you have going for you? Those all seem like giant strikes against you. He might say this, well, God has called me to this, and so therefore it will succeed. That's what Jonah has going for him. And he knows that. Don't you see it? He's got the faith to know that that's what God will do. That's why he's running the other way. If he didn't know the character of God and he didn't have faith that it would succeed, he might go and then hope against that. But he actually has great faith and he actually knows the character of God and that's why he's bolting the other way. Now, Jonah isn't necessarily a blueprint for how to pick missionaries or how to run your missions board, but it might be interesting. It might be instructive to us. Uh, sometimes churches are like, you have a pulse and you want to go, you're in. And then we send them as representatives out onto the mission field to represent Christ and bring the good news of the gospel, and they're a mess. One of the main reasons for people leaving the mission field is, get this, they can't get along with other missionaries or their missions board. Now, lest we put a big target on their back, it's the same reason pastors leave the church to go to another church, to go to another church and People in ministry, people being used by God, can work out their problems with other people. Man, God, cho- God chooses messed up people, but he still accomplishes his will. Now, let me give you a, a tiny bit of cultural context for Jonah so we have some compassion for him. Sometimes it's easy to read the Bible and go, wow, what a knucklehead. He's running from God. Clearly, he should have done it. And, and we can kind of be distant from it. Here, here's, a, here's just a little bit of cultural context. Jonah lived in the northern kingdom of Israel, 8th century B.C. To most of you, are like, wah, 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 wah. You know, you're like, I don't even know what that means. Here's why I'm telling you that. That is significant for at least a couple of reasons. I just said the northern kingdom of Israel. If there's a northern kingdom, what does that lead your mind to believe that there also is? A? You're with me. Yes! A southern kingdom. Uh, I come from a broken home. There's divorce in my household. And so when you take a family 
and you separate it into northern and southern, mom and dad, whatever else, there's just a world of fallout that comes from that. So already knowing that there's a northern kingdom, you know that this nation now has been kind of ripped apart. And so there's problems with that. The fact that I mentioned it's the 8th century BC means this, that it's well beyond the glory days of King David and King Solomon. In those days, people sought out Israel. They wanted what Israel had. They came to the Israel conference. They were like, man, we've got to get around Israel. We've got to go check out what's happening. We're going to take notes. We're going to bring that back and do what they're doing. No longer. No one fears Israel. No one's seeking out Israel. They're, they're, they're well beyond all of those days. Now, a contemporary of Jonah is King Jeroboam II. King Jeroboam II. And to get a sense of what's happening culturally in the northern kingdom of Israel during this time, we could read about some of the prophecies that are called out against King Jeroboam. And here's what you can surmise. I'll, you can go look at this up yourself, but I'll, I'll kind of shrink it down for you, cliff note style. Basically, they had fallen into a, a, a pattern of complacency. Life wasn't great. We weren't, we're not just the top of the world, but it's not fiscal cliff tomorrow. We're about to fall off the edge of the earth kind of thing here. We're kind of, somewhere kind of, life's okay. And the prophecies against King Jeroboam II are to snap him out of complacency. Does this sound even remotely familiar to kind of where we're at right now? I mean, we haven't just had the bottom fall out of the housing market, but we're not just riding high right now. And in that kind of, yeah, life is just, it's okay. There's some good and there's some bad. Complacency can kind of seep into that. So that's about, that's about where they're at. Now, add to that, this is hard for us to think about, but, but if California was our own country, think of, think of if, if Nevada were kind of this warring, and feared group of people, the Assyrians. That's what they're facing. To the east is the Assyrians. Nineveh is the capital of that city. To get just, I mean, there's all kinds of extra-biblical history on the Assyrians and how utterly ruthless and disgustingly evil they were. Like some sort of, you know, Russian mafia, they would literally take people that they had killed, cut up their body parts, send it through the mail to intimidate their neighbors. Okay? That's the Assyrians. That's to the right of them. They have brutally um, uh, attacked and killed um, Jonah's ancestors. Okay? That's who's living next door in Nevada-ish. Okay? The, the, the miles are a little bit off. But, but think of it that way, because we're Californians. We, we have to think that way. So God calling Jonah to go and minister, go be used of him. I don't know if Jonah grew up praying, God, would you use me in some great way? God, I just pray for revival. I long for you. He had to have some heart towards God. And now God calls him to go to that great city, Nineveh. I mean, Nineveh must have landed like a hammer blow on his heart. Some have compared it to saying that it would be something like asking a Jewish person in 1944 to go to that great city, Berlin, with a special special message for a guy named Hitler, that God was going to have mercy on them uh, if, if they, or basically to, to turn from evil. And then Jonah knows that he serves a merciful God slow to anger. So that's, that's where Jonah's coming from. Before we say, man, why did he run from God? Do you start to see why he ran from God? Man, anywhere but there. Anywhere but Berlin. Anywhere but Nineveh. That's the epicenter of all this evil that has tormented my family for generations. God, do you want me to go there? So he jumps ship and goes to, for ours, it would be Hawaii, right? Which, that's, that's a wrestling match too. Nevada or Hawaii, we might think on other terms as to why we'd go the other way, but that's a whole other story. But Tarshish is in Spain. It's not that he loves Spanish food. That's not why he was going there, okay? It was that he, 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 he just didn't want to go to Nineveh. Think about, think about his, uh, Think about his job. Think about his assignment. The assignment God was giving to Jonah, it wasn't missing. It wasn't this prayer. Maybe you've prayed this prayer before. God, where are you? Where are you in all of this? I can't find you. I've prayed that prayer. That wasn't Jonah's problem. The the job for Jonah wasn't hidden. Sometimes you've prayed this prayer maybe. God, what do you want from me? I'm confused as to what's next. What do you want me to be doing? That wasn't Jonah's problem. It wasn't complex. God, I don't understand. I know you've told me to do this, but I don't understand that. 
And it wasn't that he wasn't capable or that the job was too difficult. Here's the gist of the job. Get up off your couch, go on a journey to a city that you know exactly where it is, and say eight words. Not too terribly difficult. That was the task. But was it trying for Jonah? Absolutely it was. So so it wasn't missing, it wasn't hidden, it wasn't complex. He understood he was capable. Here it is. He just didn't want to. He just didn't want to go. If I could take the four chapters in Jonah and kind of boil it down to something, look at me, here, here, it, is. here it is in a nutshell. Even when you don't like it, Father still knows best. That's Jonah. Even when you don't like it, Father still knows best. Jonah wasn't perplexed. He wasn't incapable. He just didn't want to go. When was the last time that you just didn't want to? It was probably this week. Now, we get really sophisticated at this. I have a toddler that lives in my house. His name's Eli, and he's exceedingly cute, which is good because it saves his life on a regular basis. And when Eli, Eli comes up with this thing that whenever he, uh, he started this a while ago, but when he, when you give him something that he, you know, he enjoys or whatever, he'll go, I like it. I like it. And I just, it's just the cutest thing. And it's like so infectious that I say it back to him. So I hand it and go, I like it. He goes, I like it. But when Eli doesn't like it, it's not so cute. He doesn't go, I don't like it. He does all kinds of other things. And he's got a giant repertoire of things that he does when he doesn't like things. And usually his face turns red and he's pounding something. He's gritting his teeth. He's saying, no, no, daddy, which is kind of scary because that must be what he sees me doing to him sometimes. But he does all these things expressing his displeasure of what he doesn't want to do. We do the same thing, we're just more sophisticated sometimes. Sometimes we're not that different from toddlers. But we have had in this last week something we just flat out did not want to do. I don't like it. There's no other reason as to why I don't want to go that route. I just don't like it. So why didn't Jonah want to? We looked at the cultural thing, so we can kind of get that. That kind of just, that kind of puts the story in context for us, right? But what was going on in Jonah's heart and soul? The text doesn't explicitly say this, but if you look at his actions, you're actually able to read inside of his soul. And here's the powerful thing. As you read the Bible, the Bible reads you, doesn't it? You want to know what's going on in your soul? You look at your footprints. Remember from last week, footprints don't lie. I walked across a pool deck and my footprints told the story of me cutting swim practice and going off surfing. That was last week. You look at the footprints of Jonah... Jonah headed for not Nineveh. He didn't care about Tarshish so much as it was, huh, here's Nineveh. What's as far away that I know? That was the edge of the known world at that time. I'm going to run from God in Tarshish. I'd like one ticket, please, for not Nineveh. I mean, it really doesn't matter where it is. I just don't want to go there. Here's what I said last week, and I think it's true in the heart of Jonah we see this. We will never run toward that which we think is going to harm us or make us unhappy. We don't run to those things. We will always run away from those things that we think are going to kill us or make us unhappy. So as you look at the actions of Jonah and you see him fleeing the presence of the Lord, and the Bible makes it crystal clear that that's what he was doing, don't you see that he he thought in his head, here's what's going on in his heart and soul, Away from God and this mission is where I'll find happiness and peace. Isn't it so hard to relate to these Old Testament characters? No! We see this all the time. I mean, this story is as old as dirt. It's as fresh as this morning's breakfast in the heart of us and in people that we see around. This is exactly what goes on in our hearts as well. All right, so what happens next? Look over to to Jonah chapter 2. In the dark, smelly, lonely places that running from God takes us, things sometimes get really, really clear. Jonah 2, it says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. Where did that come from? Well, you know that part of the story, so I won't go there. Saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, 
and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. That's a dark place. Look down at verse 6. He goes on like that for a bit. And then in verse 6, halfway through, Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. You know what Jonah did? Jonah did what everyone who's ever followed God does. He messes up. Sometimes you trip up and it's just a tiny stumble. Sometimes you really make a mess of things. Jonah had really made a mess of things. Here's what's beautiful. The next thing he does, at least that we have account for, is he does what all people who follow God do. That is, they cry out to God. After they've messed up, they cry out to God. That's exactly what, what, what Jonah does. He cries out in his distress, and God answers him. Now, as I read that, I've read, uh, I, I've been uh, in, in some belly-of-the-beast kind of situations. My prayers haven't sounded quite so poetic as that. They've come out a little bit more raw. I love the Psalms because they're filled with really, really raw prayers. But many of you in this room have cried out, maybe two words, save me. Oh, my God, and you're not swearing. You're crying out to your Savior. You've been there, and you've prayed those kinds of prayers, perhaps. Isn't it amazing how God's grace comes in many forms? Look at verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out onto dry land. A vomiting great fish is the grace of God in Jonah's life. Man, there have been some times I've seen some ugly situations, and in the midst of the ugliness and the bile smell of things, I go, wow, this is God's grace right here in this moment, right here on this dry land covered in whale stench. That's a picture of the grace of God right there. We're talking about this series as the step of yes, and the idea behind step of yes is this. When God invites us to do something, It's not that we muster all this stuff and we have this great giant leap of faith. So many times it's just a tiny step in the right direction. It's just a faintest hint. It's it's the faith of a mustard seed because that's all we can kind of bring, bring up. And when we look at Jonah, what we see is this. We see a step of no, undeniable, absolutely not, I'm going the other way, no. And then the step of yes for Jonah, I believe, began in the belly of the whale. He couldn't prove it. He couldn't prove anything. He was stuck in the belly of a whale. It was a dark and smelly place. But that's where his heart turned, isn't it? That's where he said yes to God. Now, once he got on dry land, what proves his action? His footprints in the sand, right? That's what proves. All right, that's the way to the bus station. That's the way to the airline counter. That's the way to the, to the ship back to Joppa, back to Nineveh. Man, that proves the step of yes that actually began in the belly of a whale. Here's what's beautiful about that. Some of you have stories that go something like this. You were sitting in the service, something like this maybe, and God just whispered to your heart, and you just said, I want that. I'm saying yes to that. You couldn't do anything to prove it in that moment. You didn't need to do anything to prove it in that moment. But your lifestyle, your footprints from that point on have just begun to show, wow, I started to follow Jesus in that moment. That's Jonah in the belly of the whale. All right, look at, look at, uh, look at chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on a sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Despite his tone, God used Jonah to accomplish his will. I say despite his tone because of this. Jonah's a real person. We've already seen he had no conflict with running away from God. He made that one apparently very, very quickly. What kind of tone he used wasn't 
isn't really clearly said in the text, but he's a real person. So it could have been kind of lackluster. 40 days, this is coming. Could have been kind of gloating. You guys are so dead. You guys are just toast. I don't know. I don't know what it is. I know that I have children, and they obey me in different ways. Sometimes my children obey me with utter joy, a smile on their face. They do the job thoroughly and ask what they can do for more. This happens very rarely. I mean, just a tiny sliver of the percentage doesn't look quite like that. Sometimes they just do the job. They don't like it, but they just do it. I'm really proud of them in that moment. That's tough to do. Sometimes they let me know through the entire job of their displeasure. What you know? It's like it sounds like a herd, you know, a herd of moose or something. I don't know. It's just bizarre. But they're letting me know. It's like I got it. You don't like it. Thank you for continuing to do it. Jonah fulfilled the mission. We don't really know exactly how, but whatever he lacked in passionate preaching, the Holy Spirit filled up because God, God used it to accomplish his will. That's powerful for me. That's powerful for me as a son of God who sometimes obeys out of duty, sometimes obeys out of delight, and probably most often, to be honest, is somewhere in a giant range in between those two. But I can still be used of God even in walking in that. When you don't like it, you don't want to, Father still knows best. That's the message. So yay, that's a neat story. That's a wrap. Everyone go home. Good story. Wouldn't we love to have it end right there? It doesn't. It's not Jonah and God walking off into the sunset and the credits kind of roll. The Bible's a really, really honest book. Look look at verse uh, 1 of chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to Lord to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live." Contentious, lacks compassion, angry, whiny, and depressed. Jonah's quite a catch. I mean, he's just, he's just a mess of a disciple. As we look at him, I mean, what just happened? He just got used of God to spare certain disaster on 120,000 enemies of God. And they listened to his, to his message. His crusade was a smashing success. Everyone from the king down to every last beast stopped eating or drinking, put on sackcloth and, and had ashes around them, sat in the ashes as an outward external sign of repentance, saying, we're sorry, we've done evil before the Lord. Sometimes we romanticize what it looks like to be used by God. Sometimes we think it's going to be this, and it feels really rotten to Jonah. We'll see why in just a bit. It's easy to fall into this type of life, though, isn't it? It's certainly easy to fall into this type of ministry or church. It's the type of life or ministry that enjoys the safety and comfort of those who are in God's good graces, those in the northern kingdom of Israel. God's done great things for us in the past. He's rescued us. He's freed us from slavery. He's brought us across on dry land. We've got monuments to that. We sing about that. We have festivals about that. We all kind of think similar on that then all of a sudden, God shatters our boundaries of where His grace ought to go. All of a sudden, well beyond our comfort level, God begins to love on people. Well beyond our preferences or our safety or our likes and dislikes, God begins to shower grace and mercy on people. Isn't this what got Jesus in a lot of trouble? The establishment were guarding the good traditions of God. I kind of feel for the Pharisees sometimes. They really cared about the honor of God on one level. We know they were hypocritical in other ways. But here's this Jesus coming along, and 
making the heroes of his parables those who were the despised, those who were blatantly, essentially flipping God off with their lifestyle. And here's Jesus coming along and extending grace to them. Here's those very people coming and and celebrating when he walks by. Had to be confusing. It certainly was like that for Jonah. I don't know if Jonah's experience hits you at all, but I, for one, am absolutely thrilled that God uses fickle disciples who are messed up and have personal issues like Jonah. And I love that the Bible records it for us. The rest of chapter 4 is God reasoning with Jonah about why 120,000 lost souls are worth more to him and worth more of his care than a single plant. And frankly, the conversation doesn't go super well, which I kind of take comfort in because I have this conversation with both toddlers and teens in my house all the time about why you should think this is more important than your petty thing down here. And often, like God and Jonah, my conversation isn't going well either. It's not being received super well. When I stop long enough to really chew on things, I stop and think, you know, I am both toddler and teen on that side of the conversation like Jonah to God as well. And sometimes that conversation doesn't go well. Why? Because I don't want to. I don't believe Father knows best. I want it my way. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 12 for a moment. On any given week as I study a text, I soak in a text and I study a text. And when I say I soak in a text, it means that I read and I think about and I reread and I pray and I listen to, and I mull over, and I look at, and then I reread it again, the text. And then I also study the text. After gleaning gleaning things from the context, from connecting verses, from word studies, I then do this. I take commentaries, and I read what other people have written about this text. And it's so fun to read commentaries. Guys with more letters after their name than I even know what they mean, who are really brilliant people, and they'll comment on a passage, and sometimes they'll, they'll be pulling out things that God already gave me in my own study. And so I just give a little high five to God. I say, thank you, God. Uh, thank you for showing me those things in the text. And then often, they're showing me things in the text that I didn't know were there, and so I go back to the text, and I wrestle with it. It's a great way to, to kind of learn about things. By far, the best commentary on Scripture is Scripture. So if you ever see a passage of Scripture, and usually in your Bible there's a little letter or a number, look at what that means. Oftentimes that's quoting to another verse, maybe just connecting a similar idea, but maybe it's saying that's a direct quote of this psalm, for instance. So if you ever see the Bible talking about the Bible, then you can, then you can look at that and say, wow, that's a good commentary, because that's inspired commentary. My favorite commentary, or or commenter, I suppose you would say, is Jesus. If Jesus ever interprets a passage, or looks at a passage, you know it's gold. Guess what? Jonah's one of those passages. Jesus writes commentary. We have recorded words of Jesus about what he thought about Jonah. Matthew chapter 12 says this, by the way, Easter Sunday, Road to Emmaus, two guys talking, Jesus turns to them, and starting uh, with, with the Law and the Prophets, he shows how it all points to him. Remember that? And their hearts burned within them. The world's coolest Bible study. I was doing devotions with my daughter this week, and uh, in, in, one of our, um, in one of our Bibles, it's the Children's Storybook Bible, there's a little tagline that just says, all of Scripture whispers his name. And we read this story and before I even asked and turned to say what it meant or whatever, she just turns to me and she just says, wow, all of Scripture whispers his name. I'm talking about Jesus. And I was like, yes! That's so it! Now, what I want you to do is this. I want you to see just these bits of Jonah that we've just said. Now, look at Jesus looking back on Jonah and how he interprets it. Verse 39. Uh, verse before that, by the way, the Pharisees come and say, we want a sign. Prove it. You say that you're the Son of God, prove it. Here he says... But he answered them, Jesus talking, An evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. Pause there for a second. Had there been signs given? 
in spades. I mean, sign after sign after sign. Now, the Pharisees are asking for what? A sign. Jesus says, okay, no, no signs given to you except Jonah. He reaches way back to a familiar story of this prophet. Verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man, that's a favorite term of, of Jesus for himself, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus is showing us three things. One thing that you ought to do, God's given you a brain. God's given you logic and reason. You ought to question when someone says, I got swallowed by a fish, lived there for three days, got vomited back up, and was okay. You ought to question that. You ought to not just go, all right, I believe it. Sounds good to me. That's not normal, right? So when you read Jonah, you ought to ask, is that really true? Is that a, is that a story to kind of teach us? Is that allegory? How are we to take this? Now we go to Matthew 12, and Jesus is teaching about Jonah as actual factual. It happened. If not, then what he's saying is that me being in, in the grave for three days is kind of allegorical too. That, that really happened. He really said that happened. He really said Jonah happened. So that's the first thing. The second thing is this. He's showing us that sinful people don't like the things of God. Remember the premise of the book? Even when you don't like it, Father knows best. When I don't like something that God is doing, it's my sin. Sinful people don't like the things of God. These Pharisees weren't satisfied with the many signs that had already been provided. Seeing blind people, demons being cast out. Hey, you were lame. You're now breakdancing. That's weird. I mean, there's all kinds of signs going on all around them. You know what Jesus knew? He knew their hearts. He knew that more evidence wasn't the problem. It wasn't that there was a lack of evidence. Do you remember our Grow to Go series? That was an apologetic series. One of the things I asked our church to do at that time was this. You all got a three-by-five card, and, the, and the, the invitation was this. Would you just write down the things you struggle with about Jesus, the Bible, uh, the afterlife, faith, miracles, whatever it is? And we'll tackle some of those in that series. One of the things that I made a point of saying during that series is this. Some people, maybe some of you this morning, it's not that your good questions that are viable questions. I just said you ought to question when a guy gets swallowed by a fish. It's a viable question. Are, are miracles real? How are we to take the Bible? Was the resurrection historical? Sometimes, though, it's not that your questions aren't being a, uh, answered well or with truth. It's that you have a heart that just has 4,000 more of these cards. And so you write a question and you say, here, what about this one, teacher? Write a question. What about this one? What about this one? What about this one? Oh, yeah? All right. Well, how about this one? What it is, it's a hardness of heart to believe. Sinful people don't like the things of God. God calls the people in Nineveh that they're, they're blind. They, they, can't, they, they don't know their left hand from their right hand. Sometimes in our search for God, if we're really, really honest, we're not looking for truth. We're not really looking for answers to our deep questions. We just want to keep questioning because when we do that, we kind of keep accountability of our actions at bay. We kind of keep what we might find out and don't like about God at bay. There are some people who have written me emails, and I've engaged back with them. And the one that I get back, I've engaged back with them. And very quickly, I just begin to pray this prayer. God, if this is someone who has a hard heart, and there's 4,000 more emails represented by 4,000 more 3 by 5 cards, would you just give me wisdom to that? Because I don't want to take up valuable time with people who are hungry for truth and really want to grow and learn and, and be sidetracked of not shepherding those who need me from a person who's just looking to, to kind of derail and just wants to, to pepper the teacher with questions. Let's stump the teacher kind of, a, kind of a heart. That's where these guys were at. And Jesus saw that. So he said, all right, no sign for you except for Jonah. Lastly, he's using a familiar story. 
Jesus is showing them just exactly what he came to do and how he was going to die and rise again. So when you think about it, he says, all right, you're not getting a sign except for the sign of Jonah. They may have scratched their heads and go, what kind of lame sign is that? I mean, these are guys who just saw someone, you know, who was blind being seen, you know, seeing, and they're attributing that to demons and elsewhere. So their hearts are kind of hard. I get that. But it's a pretty phenomenal sign. He's saying, here's the work I came to do, how I'm going to die and rise from the grave on the third day. I mean, you can read this as a pagan, never goes to church except maybe once a year, and look at that and go, I get that. I get what Jesus is doing. That's because we're on the back end of the story, right? But here he was prophesying about how he was going to die and rise again. So as we read these different accounts, the question starts coming back to me. The question starts coming back to you. What about you? How are you responding to these things? It's not really that hard to see the gospel in Jonah. Let me sum it up. There's enemies of God. There's punishment that's being proclaimed or pronounced, warning. There's belief in humility. And there's the staying hand of God, which we could interpret as grace, not giving them what they deserve. That's the gospel. Right there, smack dab in the middle of your Bible, in Jonah. It's not hard to find Jesus. He's there too. Aren't you glad Jesus is a better Jonah? They both slept on a boat while experienced mariners were fearing for their life. One was sleeping because he was at utter peace. That's Jesus. The other one was probably kind of sulking in there. But they both had a giant belief in a God who made the seas. Jonah ran from his mission and became an instrument of destruction, Jesus walked steadily toward it, becoming salvation. Jonah lacked compassion. Jesus had great compassion. Jonah was made a sacrifice to save some there on the boat. Jesus became a sacrifice to save many. Jonah was spit out of the mouth of the fish in three days. The grave couldn't hold Jesus past three days. Jonah hated a particular ethnic group. Today we would call him a bigot. Jesus' love extends to all people and to all nations. We see the gospel in Jonah. We see Jesus in Jonah. But here's the crux of the matter. Here's what, here's what Jonah's about in, in large part is God and a single person, Jonah, his servant Jonah. Jonah takes a massive step of rebellion. In your face, God, I'm going the opposite way. Then he did what fallen people do. He repents, and inside of the belly of the fish... He cries out to God. What did God deliver Jonah from? A fish, right? So that's the obvious one. But the story is left really, really open-ended. I'd invite you to read the whole thing, but, but, it, but it doesn't tie up really neatly. I know what God could save him from and maybe saved him from. Rebellion, double-mindedness, running, hate, prejudice, self-centeredness, depression, those were all hang-ups that he still had by the end of the story. question for you and I is this. Do I trust God or do I trust my own desires? Do I trust in my wants or do I trust in my Father? And the answer to that question is quite simple. It's whatever you're following. Just look at your footprints. Your footprints don't lie. Your footprints might come in the form of a digital footprint. Your footprints might come in the form of if we could GPS track your car and where you go in a day. It's harder to get inside your mind and go, well, where's my mind go? Who are you following? Are you going to Nineveh because God said they're not because you like it? Or are you going to not Nineveh? Whatever is opposite of that because I'm sure that whatever God has in store for me over there is terrible. And whatever I find in the opposite direction must be better. The message to you today, friend, is this. Today is the day of salvation for you. If you're in the belly of a beast today, today's the day of salvation. Cry out to God for salvation. If you're not there, praise God. Don't let it get there. Maybe you're at the shipyard trying to catch a ride away from the presence of the Lord right now. Oddly enough, that happens in church. I'm going to kind of ease my conscience by sitting in here, but I know where my heart's going right now away from the Lord. Man, today is a day of salvation. It's as simple as the prayer Jonah prayed in the belly of a fish. God, save me. Band, I want you to come on up. There are parts to the Christian life 
I promise you, you will not like. You won't like it, not just a little. You will not like it in the depths of your gut. It will literally make your stomach churn the way it must have churned for Jonah to go over to Nineveh and preach God's grace and mercy. You know, it sounds great on a Hallmark card, but really isn't that easy when it gets going, is this. Love one another. Loving one another sounds really cute and fun in church or on a card. It's really challenging to go out and start walking that. You know why? Because you're unlovable. Because I'm unlovable. That's why. There's some people you'll click with and be like, yeah, loving one another is super easy. And then God brings someone into your life. You're like, Rah! not that guy, though. Anyone but him. Loving one another is one of those that at some point you won't like. Jesus said, die to yourself. Don't you know by now that all death is painful? All death is painful. And dying to yourself, that's painful. Part of that's dying to our wants. Here's an understatement. There are, there are parts to the Christian life that you won't like. We sing about the cross. We're thankful for the cross. But you know what? The cross is, is excruciating in some ways. The cross is utter foolishness to our workmates and our schoolmates and our roommates and maybe our family. And we're made to look the fool as we preach the cross. Trust the Father in spite of your wants. Trust him even when you don't like it and you don't want to. Let's pray. Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. God, I pray that you would help me. I pray that you would help us as a collective family to get over ourselves, to get past our likes I pray, God, you'd teach us the truth of Psalm 37, of what it looks like to delight ourselves in you to such a degree that the things we used to hate doing become, as Jesus said, food for us. Doing your will is like food for us. It's no one but you, Lord, that will give us the strength to pray as Jesus did in the garden. Take this cup from me. I don't want to. But, not my will, yours be done. Amen. God, help us with that prayer. We're helpless without you. We praise you that you long to walk with us in this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.